My father was born in 1944. And when he attended his 40-year high school reunion, he was given a piece of paper that he then passed on to me, and it was entitled, If You Were Born Before 1945. And I always kept it, and this is what it says. It says, consider all the social changes you have witnessed in your lifetime. Folks born before 1945 arrived before television and the internet, before polio shots, frozen foods, Xerox, plastic, contact lenses, frisbees, and the pill. We were born before credit cards, split atoms, laser beams, and ballpoint pens, before dishwashers, clothes dryers, electric blankets, air conditioners in our homes, and before man walked on the moon. We got married first and then lived together. Back then, a gay marriage just meant a happy one. Political correctness meant you knew which party you voted for. In our time, having a meaningful relationship meant getting along well with our cousins. We thought that fast food was what you ate during Lent, and climate change was what happened in spring, summer, fall, and winter. We were before house husbands, computer dating, dual careers, and commuter marriages. We were before daycare centers, group therapy, and nursing homes. There were not yet any computers, text messaging, FM radio, tape decks, electric typewriters, artificial hearts, word processors, yogurt, guys wearing earrings. For us, time-sharing meant togetherness, not computers or condominiums. A chip was a piece of wood. Hardware meant, well, all kinds of metal stuff you bought at a hardware store, and software wasn't even a word. In 1940, made in Japan usually meant junk. <laughs> and the term making out referred to asking how you did on your exam. Hitting on somebody suggested punching them. Pizzas, McDonald's, Starbucks, and instant coffee were unheard of. We hit the scene when there were five and ten cent stores where you bought things for five and ten cents. Ice cream cones sold for a nickel or a dime. For one nickel, you could ride a bus, make a phone call, buy Pepsi or enough stamps to mail one letter and two postcards. You could buy a Chevy Coupe for $600, but who could afford one? A pity, because gas was 11 cents a gallon at the time. In our day, grass was mowed, Coke was a cold drink, and pot was something you cooked in. We may do with what we had because we had to, and we were the last generation that was so dumb as to think that you needed a husband to have a baby. It's no wonder that there's still such a generation gap today. Now, that piece tickled my father, and he passed it on to me, and I got a smaller chuckle out of it, you know, than he did, of course. But it's a satirical blurb that's intended to exalt one generation and kind of cast a shadow upon another. And it seems that in every generation, we feel the disdain of the previous one and, and then we kind of pass on that same disdain to the generations that are coming after us. And that's ironic to me, because in many ways, the previous generation is responsible for the outcome of the succeeding one, isn't it? It was Chaim Ginnat, a, a Jewish child psychologist, again, from a generation ago, who said this. He said, parents often talk about the younger generation as if they didn't have anything to do with it. That's great, isn't it? Now, as we transition from Samuel now to kings, we begin with the passing of the baton from one generation now to a new one. We're going to leave David and his legacy behind tonight. We're going to transition to his son, Solomon, who is now left to rule Israel at a time uh, that, that they will come to their pinnacle of their existence as a nation. Now, Samuel was also a time of transition. It was a time of transitioning from the period of the judges, when judges ruled over the nation of Israel, to the period of the kings, where kings would rule over God's people. And now we have a transition again in kings as we transition from David, the man that God used to really establish and set up the kingdom, what he wanted it to be, 
and then his son, Solomon, and then the successive generations that will follow uh, him. And what we'll see in Kings is we will see, um, first of all, the reign and ministry of Solomon. But then we'll see the division of the kingdom. Israel will split in two. Judah will be one part by itself. And then the other ten tribes will be what is called Israel. And they will separate or segregate from Israel. Though they will be a nation, they will be divided into in that way. And then we will find that they decline from there. And they will ultimately culminate in destruction by the time we get to the end. Now, one of the things that I think it's easy for you and me to overlook in the busyness of our lives as they are is the reality and the responsibility that we have uh, of succession. And that is passing on to the generation that is to come the values, the truth, and the calling that we ourselves have received. What are we doing to prepare the next generation uh, for success? And not so much in the worldly sense of terms and things, but in the things of God. Excuse me. <coughs> and what we will see tonight is David in his decline, and then the drama that surrounds the ascension of Solomon as he takes the throne. And we'll see that there are two sons of David tonight. One, uh, a man by the name of Adonijah, who wanted to sit upon the throne and thought that he deserved it. And then we'll see another, Solomon, who is actually the one who is called, equipped, and appointed uh, for the task. But in this study, as we look at the first two chapters tonight, what we gain, what we see are several clues as to what made these two men what they ultimately became. (coughs) Excuse me. And what we can learn as parents uh, seeking to equip and to prepare our sons uh, and daughters for what's to come. And so we begin in chapter 1 uh, with David's decline and Adonijah's uh, play for the throne. Notice with me in verse 1. It says, Now King David was old and advanced in years. And they put covers on him, but he could not get warm. Therefore his servant said to him, Let a young woman, a virgin, be sought for our lord the king, and let her stand before the king, and let her care for him, And let her lie in your bosom, that our Lord the King may be warm. So they sought for a lovely young woman throughout all the territory of Israel, and found Abishag the Shunammite, and brought her to the king. The young woman was very lovely, and she cared for the king and served him, but the king did not know her. Now, it tells us that David was old at this time, but he was really only about 70 years old uh, at the time that it's written. And that's actually quite young for a man as frail as what David is described to be, especially in Bible times. And it's important that we note that, (coughs) excuse me, (coughs) again, this frailty of David is not because of the... um, age, the years necessarily that he's lived. We see many that lived many more years than David, but rather this is associated with mileage. Anyone who's ever bought a used car understands exactly what I'm talking about. There are times you buy one that's not that old, but it has been around the block a few times. And that's what we find with David, 70 years old, but a man who lived the equivalent of many lifetimes within the 70 years that he had. We're told that he could get no heat, and so a young woman, a woman by the name of Abishag, was brought to him. Now, this sounds strange to you and I, to hear something like this happening. But it was actually a common medical treatment for a condition such as David would have in those days. Body heat, there's nothing like it. You can't put enough medication or give someone enough blankets or clothing, then give them body heat and... Uh, you, you know, that, that will do the trick. It tells us that it was non-sexual, although this woman probably became his concubine, uh, as will become clearer later on in the story, as we'll see Abishag uh, brought up again. Now, a concubine just simply meant that she was bound to him legally, but she would not be an heir of him practically. So she would be considered a wife, but she wouldn't be a receiver, and her sons would not gain an inheritance or a claim to the name uh, of David in that thing. It's worth noticing here the frailty of our hero David. 
The Bible says that the glory of man is like the flower of the field. That in one moment it springs up and it's beautiful and it seems like it's the center of all attention and all glory. But then the next moment the sun rises on it, it dries out, it withers it away, it's blown away, and the place where it was doesn't even remember where it was at all. And David is no... um, He's not excused from having to go the same way that everyone else in this life will have to go. And it's worthy of our consideration to think, well, what, when we get to that point in our lives, will we look back and be able to say about our years and about our lives and about our legacy? David, although he made many mistakes, was a man after God's own heart. And he could look back on his years, and the wear and tear that was done on his body was well worth it because he lived those things for the Lord. And this is a reminder for us that this day comes for us all. That all of us will one day be in a place where our health is declining and our days are numbered. And when we look back at that time, what will we have done with our lives? David is an example. Well, it was in those days that we see what happened in verse 5. It says, then Adonijah. The son of Haggith, that's a great name, isn't it? I can't help when I think of that to picture like a witch or something. But it says, the son of Haggith exalted himself, saying, I will be king. And he prepared for himself chariots and horsemen and 50 men to run before him. And his father had not rebuked him at any time by saying, why have you done so? And he was also very good looking. His mother had borne him after Absalom. Then he conferred with Joab, the son of Zeruiah, that was David's general, and with Abiathar, the priest, that was the faithful priest that had been with David ever since his days running with Saul. And they followed and helped Adonijah. But Zadok, the priest, Benaiah, the son of Jehoiada, he was one of David's chief mighty men. He was the one that slew two lion-like Moabite men and then went down into a pit on a snowy day and killed a lion and an Egyptian of valor with his own spear. We read about him last week. That's this Benaniah guy. He became one of David's chief men in his final years, and he will go on to become Solomon's general. Um, So Benaniah, the son of Jehoiada, Nathan, the prophet, He's the one that confronted David over his sin with Bathsheba back in 1 Samuel chapter 12. And then Shimei, Rei, and the mighty men who belonged to David, they were not with Adonijah. So Adonijah took a whole bunch of guys with him, including many of the sons of David. But those that were the closest advisors to David, he didn't. And also, verse 9, it says, And Adonijah sacrificed sheep and oxen and fatted cattle by the stone of Zeholoth, which is by Enrogel, he also invited all his brothers, the king's sons, and all the men of Judah, the king's servants. But he did not invite Nathan the prophet, Benaiah, the mighty men, or Solomon, his brother. And so we're told here that this man, Adonijah, that he rose up and that he exalted himself and he had the desire to make himself the king. Now, as we read these verses that we just looked at, we make seven observations about the character of this man, Adonijah, and what it was that he possessed. The first thing that we notice is that he was ambitious. It says that he exalted himself and said, I will be king. He was ambitious, but he was the worst kind of ambitious that any human being can be. He had what the Bible calls selfish ambition. And that is an ambition that has a desire to get what it wants and it will stop at nothing, no matter the cost to anyone else, to get what it wants. And that was the type of ambition that this man, uh, um, Adonijah, had. He He would do what he had to do to get what he wanted. We're also told that he was arrogant. That he made for himself the equivalent of a motorcade. He had 50 men, outrunners, that would go before him. Do you remember who else did that? Absalom, when he rebelled against David, he prepared 50 men to run before him, before his rebellion. And it seems that now Adonijah follows suit. The pomp of it, the appearance of it, the supposed glory and authority that it brought, he thought he could glom for himself. And so he prepares these 50 men to go before him, a show of arrogance. We're told also that he was attractive. This list is getting more and more toxic, isn't it? 
I mean, you put these things together and then add on top of it the attractiveness of a person. (laughs) He was one of those people, just like Absalom that we read about before, that didn't even need a bathroom mirror. Do you know someone like that? They just look that good. They just put a little note on the wall in front of the sink in the bathroom that says, don't worry about it. You know, and that was this man, Adonijah. He was that good looking. It also tells us that he was or felt entitled. It tells us that his mother bore him after Absalom. Now that means one thing and it's mentioned for one purpose. It meant that he most likely was the most uh, favored or likely person to receive the throne after David. In those days, a dynasty would usually go to the oldest child of the, you know, the, the passing king. And we know that already David has lost a few. He lost Amnon, <clears throat> who was uh, the oldest. He's the one who raped Tamar, his half-sister, and Absalom killed him. Then he lost Absalom when Joab pierced him through with the dart. And there was only one other guy, this guy Chiliab, who was the son of uh, Abigail. And we don't know what happened to him, but we get the idea that either he just was not king-like material or somehow he's off the scene. Because Adonijah believes, and Israel also will kind of follow along suit with the fact that he should be the king after him. And so he's entitled. He feels like, hey, I am the most gifted. I'm the most eligible choice. Amnon and Absalom are dead, and so it's got to be me. So he was entitled. He also was influential. He was able to persuade Joab, who had been fiercely loyal to David throughout his life uh, and ministry, to follow along with him, along with Abiathar, uh, the priest, that he was the one. And though they didn't go after Absalom, they did believe that Adonijah would be the successor. And then we also learned that he is divisive. He did not invite Solomon or Zadok or Benaiah or any of the chief mighty men of David. Now, he knew that Solomon was the one who was supposed to be the king after him, that that was David's will. Although David had not made it public, he had announced it in private. It was part of the promise that God made to David when he told him that David's seed would ultimately end in the Messiah. In 1 Chronicles, when David um, reiterates his blessing upon Solomon's life, he said that it was at that time that God told him Solomon would be the king. And so it was known in David's family and in the inner ranks that Solomon was God's choice and that he was the one that was supposed to succeed him. And so Adonijah knew this, but he was more concerned about getting what he wanted than, and, or than what was God's will and what was best for the nation. Uh, and so he saw all of this as a purely political and natural process. To the strong go the spoils was the philosophy of Adonijah, and he would take the kingdom by hook or by crook. The book of Revelation, chapter 4, verse 11, has a verse that I think if it was the life verse of every Christian in New Testament times, we would be the better for it. He says, you are worthy, O Lord, to receive glory and honor and power. He says, for you created all things, and for your pleasure they are and were created. You were created for God's pleasure. Now, for some, that might sound offensive. You say, no, I'm a free moral agent and I'm created for my pleasure. No, the Bible says you were created, made, knit together in your mother's womb. He knows you better than he knows yourself. He knows the hairs that are on your head, how many days you'll live. He knows your day that you'll be appointed with death. The Bible says that his thoughts towards you outnumber the grains of sand that are on the seashore. That God knows you and that he made you for a purpose and that purpose was to bring him pleasure. Now, if he knows all of those things about you, number of hairs, your days, your plans, the way you think, the way you're wired, and then you couple that with the fact that the Bible says that he is good, that he is gracious, that he is kind, and that he is giving, you put those two things together, and if you're wise, you'll come to the conclusion that the best choice you can make is to yield your will to his will for your life. Because if you were created for his pleasure, then that means that if you find yourself in the perfect will of God for your life, 
you're going to experience his pleasure. Because he lives in you. And if you are pleasing him and he is pleased and he is in you, then the result of that is that you then are also pleased and you are walking in harmony with God. God has a plan and a will for every one of us. And we will find it or he will lead us into it if we position our lives in a place where we want him to do his will within us. Now, the point of that is this, is that Adonijah thought he knew what was best for him. He thought he could do better for himself than what God could do for him. And what he's going to find is that he'll, for a moment, enjoy the power and the pleasure of that position. But it isn't what God made him for. And so he ultimately won't be able to sustain it, and it's going to fall out. Psalm 75, verses 6 and 7 says this. It says, For exaltation or promotion comes neither from the east, nor from the west, nor from the south. But God is the judge. He puts one down, and he exalts another. Again, God spoke through the prophet Daniel to King Nebuchadnezzar in Daniel chapter 4, verse 17. And it says that the Lord is the one who raises up. Let me read it to you so I don't misquote it since it's going to be on the screen. You'll be able to laugh at me. It says that the decision is by the decree of the watchers and the sentence by the word of the holy ones in order that the living may know that the most high rules in the kingdom of men gives it to whomever he will and sets over it even the lowest of men. That it's God who rises up even those that are in places and seats of political power. That isn't just something that's secluded to a few obscure Old Testament verses, but it's a principle that we see consistently demonstrated even in the New Testament. The Apostle Paul telling the church at Rome to submit yourself to the governing authorities because they are there by the will of God. But here's the point. Is that Adonijah, if he's not ordained to be in that position, he can't sustain that position. Even Jesus said to Pilate, he said, no power could, could you have at all except it were given to you by God. So what's the point? The point is, Adonijah is out of the will of God in this. And the only place that you'll ever realize the pleasure of God and the purpose for your existence is when you and I, when we yield ourselves to, uh, to the ways of God. Now, I told you there were seven attributes uh, of Adonijah's character, and I've only given you six. I want to give you the seventh. What was the reason why Adonijah was all of those other things? It's because he was also enabled. It tells us that David in no time reproved or corrected his son. He at no point rebuked him for his behaviors or adjusted the tendencies that he saw in him, but rather he allowed those things to just grow wild. And this was a weakness of David. We see it throughout his life. After his sin with Bathsheba, he lost all authority to govern righteously within his home. When Amnon raped his half-sister, David was grieved by it, but he did nothing to correct it. When Absalom then killed Amnon, David was silent, and it took years for that to be resolved. And then it was resolved in a very superficial way, Absalom ultimately dying. And here we're told, even with Adonijah, that at no time did David ever rebuke or correct him for the things that he did. The Bible teaches that you and I, and our kids, that we are all born sinners. That that's the way we come into this world. We don't come into the world and then develop a sin nature. No, we're downloaded with that. And anyone that raises kids, you understand exactly what that's like. We deal with their sin nature from the time that they are cognizant of anything. Their first steps, their first words, their first actions, all of those things point to us the fact that they have a sin nature. In Proverbs chapter 22, verse 15, the scripture says that foolishness is bound up in the heart of a child, but the rod of correction will drive it far from him. What that means is this, is that all of those fallen fleshly tendencies that we see in Adonijah were all things that were there, downloaded from birth. And the reason that they were able to grow to a point where he will bring insurrection upon the nation of Israel, is because they were never corrected or rebuked or chastised. Now follow this. Every one of the negative attributes of Adonijah's character has a redeeming aspect or quality. 
Selfish ambition, when it is corrected and brought to the cross and properly disciplined by a leading parent, selfish ambition can become godly ambition. It changes from being ambitious about selfish things to being ambitious in the things of God and for God's glory, and that's a good thing. Jesus didn't condemn ambition or a desire for greatness. He condemned the motives that were behind it. If it's motivated selfishly, then it's of the flesh, it's devilish, it's sensual, it's earthly. But if it's brought to the cross and those same ambitions that are employed for the things of God, it can be used for good. Arrogance finds its completion in the cross in confidence, but not self-confidence. Not the kind of confidence where I put and think that I can be or I can do something great. But rather, it's confidence in God and what God made me to be. It's God confidence, not self-confidence. Attractiveness, properly corrected and crucified, is realized not in the outward attractiveness of what's on the appearance, but in the inward appearance of what the Spirit looks like on the inside. And if it's properly placed in a person's understanding to know what attractiveness is, then you understand that it's fleeting. That one day, even if you don't need a mirror today, you will need one tomorrow. Because all flesh is as grass. And every one of us, we're fading. We're getting uglier with every passing day. You know, it's just the reality of life. But the inward man, Paul the Apostle said, is being renewed day by day so that we're being made into the image of likeness of Christ. Our flesh is rotting, but our inward aroma is growing and seasoning and getting greater with time. And so that outward quality of attractiveness, if, if, if it's governed rightly by a loving parent, it's brought under the cross and it's not the emphasis of a person's life, but rather their, their inner attractiveness is what matters. The entitlement that Adonijah felt. In man's concept, entitlement is, I'm owed something. Because of who I am, or because of my, who my parents are, or because of where I live, or where I come from, I'm entitled to something. I'm owed something. But in God's perspective, when it's brought under the cross and properly crucified, that same attitude becomes, I'm promised something. And it's not arrogantly thinking that I'm entitled to something that should be given to me, but rather it's an understanding of God's love for me and that he's given promises through his word that are mine for the taking. He's promised it, and therefore it is uh, something that points me not to entitlement, but grace. And it gives me an understanding in the promises of God. And my influence, uh, the fact that Adonijah was influential, is all a matter of how it's used. If I'm a person that's influential, I can use that influence for me, for self, to magnify my position and stake in things, or I can use my influence for God, and that's what makes all the difference. But listen, those transitions, those changes don't happen by themselves. It takes the wisdom of a godly and loving parent to recognize those fleshly attributes and then to apply God's word and God's chastisement and God's discipline as he prescribes it and make those adjustments, sowing spiritual things into the heart and the life of the child. In Proverbs chapter 29, verse 15, the wise man Solomon, who will see these things were used upon later in our study, he says this, he says, The rod and rebuke give wisdom, but a child left to himself brings shame to his mother. When the wicked are multiplied, transgression increases, but the righteous will see their fall. And then he says this, correct your son and he will give you rest. Yes, he will give delight to your soul. And so he tells us that we've got to be diligent in the preparation and the correction of our children. Back in chapter 13 of Proverbs, in verse 24, Solomon also said this. He said, he who spares the rod hates his son, but he who loves him disciplines him promptly. That is that if we leave our children to just grow and uh, become what they will be by nature, then, then we are, in effect, we are hating them because we are enabling them, as David did Adonijah, to just become wild and lawless, godless people. And that's what Adonijah became because he was not disciplined. He was not prepared for the generation that he would have to grow in. Well, you ask the question and you say, well, how do we do that as parents in this generation? How do we bring our children up in the fear and the admonition of the Lord and bring this correction to them? We'll answer that question in chapter 2.
But in verse 11, now we see the unfolding of the drama behind Adonijah's desire to usurp the throne. It says, so Nathan spoke to Bathsheba, the mother of Solomon. So Nathan finds out about what Adonijah is doing, and he brings word to Bathsheba, Solomon's mom, and he says, have you not heard that Adonijah, the son of Haggith, has become king, and David, our Lord, does not know it? Come, please, let me now give you advice or counsel that you may save your own life and the life of your son Solomon. Go immediately to King David. Go to the king. Go into his room and say to him, Did you not, my lord, O king, swear to your maidservant, saying, Assuredly, your son Solomon shall reign after me, and he shall sit on my throne? Why then has Adonijah become king? Then, Nathan said, While you are still talking with the king, I also will come in after you and confirm your words. So Bathsheba went into the chamber to the king. Now the king was very old, and Abishag the Shunammite was serving the king. And Bathsheba bowed and did homage to the king. Then the king said, What is your wish? Then she said to him, My lord, you swore by the Lord your God to your maidservant, saying, Assuredly, Solomon, your son, shall reign after me, and he shall sit on my throne. So now look, Adonijah has become king, and now, my lord the king, you do not know about it. He has sacrificed oxen and fatted cattle and sheep in abundance and has invited all the sons of the king, Abiathar the priest and Joab the commander of the army. But Solomon, your servant, he has not invited. And as for you, my lord, O king, the eyes of all Israel are on you that you should tell them who will sit on the throne of my lord the king after him. Otherwise it will happen when my lord the king rests with his fathers, that I and my son Solomon will be counted as offenders. The idea behind that is that when a king would come into power, the first thing that he would do is remove all the potential obstacles (coughs) or adversaries uh, to his plans. And so if Adonijah is successful and David dies before he sets this thing straight, then surely Bathsheba and Solomon and Nathan and Benaiah and all the others that weren't invited, uh, that they will be uh, killed. And so, verse 22, um, Nathan goes on to say, this is the plan that they're making. It says, and just then, while she was still talking with the king, Nathan the prophet also came in. So they told the king, saying, here is Nathan the prophet. And when he came in before the king, he bowed down before the king with his face to the ground. And Nathan said, my lord, O king, have you said Adonijah shall reign after me and he shall sit on my throne? For he has gone down today and sacrificed oxen and fattened cattle and sheep in abundance and has invited all the king's sons and the commanders of the army (coughs) and Abiathar the priest and look. They are eating and drinking before him, and they say, Long live King Adonijah. But he has not invited me, your servant, nor Zadok the priest, nor Benaiah the son of Jehoiada, nor your servant Solomon. Has this thing been done by my lord the king, and you have not told your servant who should sit on the throne of my lord the king after him? So Nathan brings the same question that Bathsheba brought. Now, why would they do this? The Bible says, in the mouth of two or three witnesses, let everything be confirmed. And it could very well be that Bathsheba's testimony alone, David would say, ah, I'll look into it, I'll get around to it eventually, you know, when I can have the strength or whatnot. But by Nathan coming in, it brings uh, support, it brings strength to the accusation, and it urges David to do something diligently about it, which he does. Verse 28. So then King David answered, And he said, call Bathsheba to me. So she came into the king's presence and stood before the king. And the king took an oath and said, as the Lord lives, who has redeemed my life from every distress, just as I swore to you by the Lord God of Israel, saying, assuredly, Solomon, your son, shall be king after me, and he shall sit on my throne in my place, so certainly will I do this day. This is how we know that it was not a secret, that it was known in the the inner circles and in the family who was selected and who was chosen. Then Bathsheba bowed down with her face to the earth and paid homage to the king and said, let my lord, King David, live forever. Now the coronation, verse 32. 
And so David the king said, call to me Zadok the priest, Nathan the prophet, and Benaiah the son of Jehoiada. So they came before the king. The king also said to them, take with you the servants of your Lord and have Solomon, my son, ride on my own mule. Now, there wasn't very many mules in that day. It was forbidden by the law that they would be bred in Israel. They had to be imported, and it was always a sign of royalty. And everyone in Israel knew David's mule. There was none like it. And so he said, take and set him on my own mule and take him down to Gihon. And there let Zadok the priest and Nathan the prophet anoint him king over Israel and blow the horn and say, long live King Solomon. Then you shall come up after him and he shall come and sit on my throne. So my mule, now my throne, and he shall be king in my place. For I have appointed him to be ruler over Israel and Judah. Benaiah, the son of Jehoiada, answered the king and said, Amen. May the Lord God of my Lord, the king, say so too. As the Lord has been with my Lord, the king, even so may he be with Solomon and make his throne greater than the throne of my Lord, King David. So what we have here is we have the second. You know how like you're, you're in a meeting and can I get a motion? And David gives the motion. He says, I set Solomon up and Benaiah says, Amen. And he says, may his throne be even greater than your throne. And so they do it, verse 38. So Zadok the priest, Nathan the prophet, Benaiah the son of Jehoiada, the Cherethites and the Pelethites went down and had Solomon ride on King David's mule and took him to Gihon. Then Zadok the priest took a horn of oil from the tabernacle and anointed Solomon, and they blew the horn, and all the people said, Long live King Solomon. And all the people went up after him, And the people played the flutes and rejoiced with great joy so that the earth seemed to split with their sound. We see Solomon now coming into the place for which he had been put upon the planet. Do you realize the grace that's involved in this? When you realize that Solomon was the offspring of Bathsheba, who was the adulterous wife of David, whose husband was murdered by David in order for him to obtain her. And Solomon was the first son that survived that relationship. And for God to have chosen Solomon amongst all the other sons of David is just a token of his grace. And how often do we see God doing that throughout the Bible? I think of Rahab, the harlot, who he called. I think of Tamar, the uh, woman who prostituted herself to Judah that ultimately became the line that 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 brought through. And so many times throughout the scriptures, think of Ruth and and her offspring and how God would choose a Gentile woman to be the one that would be the great-great-grandmother of this King David. And now it's through Bathsheba and her son Solomon that God chooses to raise up a name for himself. It encourages me so much to realize that God isn't looking for the mighty or the strong or the person with the heritage or the pedigree, but he's looking for the person whose heart he can get a hold of and the person that will receive his grace the most, that he's the one he wants to show himself strong on their behalf. Isn't it interesting here that when the will of God is heeded, that even the earth bears witness? It says that the earth seemed to split. In other words, that even the earth itself bore witness with it. That it was almost as though to those that were there that day gathered, that heaven was giving its approval uh, through the things even that were made. Well, in verse 41, now we see what happens to Adonijah, who exalted himself to become the king. It says, now Adonijah and all the guests who were with him heard it as they finished eating. So the feast is over. Adonijah's feeling pretty good. He feels as though he's made a successful play at the throne. He's been coronated and the people are with him. And when Joab heard the sound of the horn, a familiar sound for Joab, who is the general, he said, why is the city in such a noisy uproar? And while he was still speaking, there came Jonathan, the son of Abiathar the priest. And Adonijah said to him, come in, for you are a prominent man, and bring good news. Then Jonathan answered and said to Adonijah, no, (laughs) our Lord King David has made Solomon king. The king has sent with him Zadok, the priest, Nathan, the prophet, Benaiah, the son of Jehoiada, the Cherethites and the Pelethites, and they have made him ride on the king's mule. So Zadok the priest and Nathan the prophet have anointed him king at Gihon, and they have gone up from there rejoicing so that the city is in an uproar. This is the noise that you have heard. Also, Solomon sits on the throne of the kingdom. He's on a higher throne than you are. 
And moreover, the king's servants have gone to bless our Lord King David, saying, May God make the name of Solomon better than your name, and may he make his throne greater than your throne. (coughs) Then the king bowed himself on the bed. Also, the king said thus, Blessed be the Lord God of Israel, who has given one to sit on my throne this day while my eyes see it. So David, he says, David himself, not only does he have the king's mule and the king's throne and the king's supporters, but the king himself bowed down upon his bed to Solomon himself and praised God that he got to see it. And so it says in verse 49 that all the guests who were with Adonijah were afraid and they arose and each one went his way. Talk about an abrupt ending to a celebration. Okay, everyone out of the pool, you know, kind of a thing. Uh, The cops are here, split. You know, that's what happens. You've ever been in that situation? You know exactly what it's like. And, you know, the people that were wearing the lampshade on their head and holding up two things and, you know, making a big deal, all of a sudden very discreetly removed that and uh, got them away from there because they knew trouble was up. Amazing. Watch what, watch what happens. Verse 50 it says, Now Adonijah was afraid of Solomon. So he arose and he went and he took hold of the horns of the altar. Now in the tabernacle, on the altar, in the four corners, there were four horns that would come up. And it was customary that when someone wanted to plead for mercy for an offense that they had made, if they were truly repentant and it wasn't a crime worthy of death, then they could go to the tabernacle, hold on to the horns of the altar, and there plead for mercy and hope to get it. And so that's what he does. And it says, it was told Solomon, saying, indeed, Adonijah is afraid of King Solomon, for look, he has taken hold of the horns of the altar, saying, let King Solomon swear to me today (coughs) that he will not put his servant to death with the sword. Then Solomon said, if he proves himself a worthy man, Not one hair of him shall fall to the earth. But if wickedness is found in him, he shall die. So Solomon gives a decree that is very gracious, very merciful. He says if he shows himself worthy, if he can fall in line, he lives. If not, he dies. So King Solomon sent them to bring him down from the altar. And he came and he fell down before King Solomon. And Solomon uh, said to him there, go to your house. In other words, he removed him from any position or place of public life. He said, you are now officially retired from any public position. You can go back into civilian life. You can do what you want from there, but you're finished uh, in this realm, in this thing. Again, the Bible says that promotion does not come from the east, from the west, or from the south. Promotion comes from the Lord. And the only way that you can ultimately occupy any position in this life is if God wills it in heaven. His will will always be done on earth as it is in heaven. And if he has not willed that position for you in heaven, then it cannot be yours on earth. No matter should you have it, it will only be a matter of time before you lose it. Furthermore, if God hasn't willed you to be in a particular position, then that means he also hasn't equipped you to be in a particular position. And thus being in that position is going to be hell for you. It won't be an enjoyment or you'll get the satisfaction from it that you want. And that's what Adonijah finds here. It's a very short-lived pleasure, and it it, it kind of throws uh, a wrench in his plans and God's plans, ultimately, for his life. So now in chapter 2, we get now the establishment of Solomon's kingdom uh, in verse 1. It said, Now the days of David drew near that he should die. And he charged Solomon his son, saying... Now Solomon, at this time, at the most is 20 years old. Now that is a young age. In fact, in Chronicles, he outright says, David does to his servants, he is inexperienced and young. And he is. He is 20 years old at this time. Uh, And and, and so, um, you know, some think that he might be as young as 16. I don't think he's that young because I think the Bible would tell us it does in other places in Kings when a king starts that young. Um, But what we see with Solomon now is a clear contrast to what we saw in Adonijah. Adonijah was a train wreck, and Solomon will succeed. And so what's the difference? 
What's the difference, besides the call of God, which is obviously uh, an essential, what's the difference between Solomon and Adonijah that made Solomon succeed and made Adonijah fail? And I think that it's good for us to consider, and I think it's also good for us to uh, realize for ourselves as those that are seeking to equip the next generation. If you're a parent here, if you're a grandparent here, if you have the ability to speak into the lives of those that are younger than you, then the things that we see in Solomon are things that we need for ourselves. And so if you're taking note, um, here are a few things to consider about uh, Solomon. And that is, first of all, and you can write this down, is that he was spiritually attached. Or you could say that he was nurtured in the things of God. Or if you really want to get NIV about it, you could say he was raised in the church. We get the idea from other supporting scriptures that Solomon... Uh, was was influenced greatly by a close relationship he had with Nathan the prophet. You recall when he was first born, it says that he was loved of the Lord and that Nathan actually gave him a nickname. Nathan called him Jedediah, which meant beloved of the Lord. And we find that Nathan also intercedes for Solomon to Bathsheba and David when Adonijah usurps the throne. And you get the idea that Solomon and Nathan were somewhat close. That Nathan had invested and spoken uh, even into his life. Now, David, as we said, was not a good father. Although David loved the Lord, and, you know, that was evident to all of Israel, we know that the influence that Solomon received spiritually came from somewhere else. Most likely that was from, uh, uh, from Nathan, not from David. But what it speaks to us of is the importance of raising our children in close contact with the things of God and with the people of God. It's so important that our kids get that spiritual foundation. Now, if your children or our children, if the only spiritual time that they get is the time that they get in church, then the odds for them doing well in the things of God are not too good. However, if church is the only exposure they get, the odds are better than if they get no exposure at all. (laughs) The best is if there's an integration between what they experience and see at home and then what's reinforced when they come to church and learn the things of God and fellowship with the people of God and and drink of the Spirit of God, something that you get when you're here more than you could ever get on a tape or through a teaching or a curriculum. That's what's best. That's what they need. And Solomon in some way received that. Now, I'm going to give David a pass on being an absentee father for two reasons. Number one, because he was a king of a nation. And if you are the king of a nation, then you may have somewhat of a pass if you're maybe not quite there for your... But if you're not, then you're on the hook for that. You don't get the pass. And you need to be raising your kids, making sure they're spiritually attached. The other reason is because David genuinely loved the Lord. You couldn't be around David, uh, not at all, and not know that he had a deep and, and sincere love for God. That was legit. He wasn't a player. He wasn't something when he went to the tabernacle and then something else, except with Bathsheba, which he owned that fully. But David was a man who sincerely loved God. And it would be a legacy that he would leave in his children nevertheless. He loved God. So he was spiritually attached. He was also scripturally admonished. Notice with me in verse 2. Solomon says, I go the way of all the earth. I'm sorry, David says to Solomon, his son. He says, I go the way of all the earth. Be strong, therefore, and prove yourself a man. And keep the charge of the Lord your God to walk in his ways, to keep his statutes, his commandments, his judgments, and his testimonies, as it is written in the law of Moses, that you may prosper in all that you do and wherever you turn. That the Lord may fulfill his word which he spoke concerning me, saying, If your sons take heed to their way and walk before me in truth with all of their heart and with all their soul, he said, You shall not lack a man on uh, the throne of Israel. David had been king for 40 years. And Solomon had been king now for maybe a couple of weeks or for a couple of months. And you would think that David's last words as he now brings Solomon in to lay lay it all out before him, you would think that this is going to take some time. Forty years of experience and wisdom now being applied to someone who's been doing this for just a couple of days. 
Come on, lay it on us, David. Let us know what's the secret to being a good king. It doesn't take that long at all. He basically says to him two things. He says, show yourself strong and a man. It means be tough, have conviction and purpose in what you're going to do. Guard what it is that God has given you, this position of king. And then number two, in as many different ways as David can express it, he says, give yourself to the word of God. Take heed to his commandments, his statutes, his judgments, and his ways. Be attached to God's word. That is the key to prosperity and success. It's similar to what uh, Moses said to Joshua. Remember back in Joshua chapter 1? Be strong and very courageous. And then he said, be diligent to keep all of the words and the ways, the commandments of God, and walk in them, for then you will prosper and have good success. Similar thing. Listen, church. Listen, mom and dad, grandma, grandpa, listen. The word of God is the most valuable thing that you and I possess. Because it's living. It's an anchor of truth. It never fails. God is jealously careful to see that not one word of his ever fails, ever. Even for one moment. So far that even Jesus would say that heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will not pass away. In other words, if God has to remove the earth and remove the heaven in order to keep something that he said, he's going to do that. Because his word is not going to fall. He'll never let his word fall. Now, when it comes to raising kids, and especially raising godly kids, this is an essential. Now, please, my oldest child is 12 years old, and I'm fully aware of what I'm about to to sail into in these waters of of parenting uh, here. I have five of them, and, and the oldest is 12. So I know that I'm on the front side of all of this. So I'm not pontificating. I'm not talking down on anyone. If anyone, I'm saying, please pray for me and help me. You know, but I want to say this, I want to say this, is that when Georgia and I, um, before we got married, we both, and I use that word we, I emphasize that, we both surrendered our lives to Jesus Christ and brought ourselves into submission to the word of God. We individually and personally made that the way that we live, the way that we Uh, interact, the way that we think, our worldview, the way we make decisions, the way we look at the world, the way we assess people, the way we deal with money, everything in our lives we want, I'm not saying we're perfect, but we want it to be governed by the word of God. And we both did that. Then we got married, right? And then we had a couple of kids. And always the word of God has been the authority and the anchor for our home. It's, it's in the epicenter of uh, our discussions, our decisions, our conversations, our reasonings, our interactions. The word is always first. And thus, the word of God is the standard for behavior within our home. Both for us, and again, we're not perfect. I'm not saying you should be like me. We, that's our desire. It's where our heart is at. And that's also what we pass on to our children. What's right, what's wrong. What's acceptable, what's not acceptable, the standard is the Word of God. That's where we stand. Now, how does that work? What we've done is that we have sought and successfully thus far, granted the oldest is only 12. But it's still, I'll take those 12 years. I'll take them, okay? What we've done is we've sought to win them to that same conviction. That the Word of God is a reliable record. That what God says is true, he's the author of life, he knows how all this life stuff works, and if we submit and surrender to his ways, then we're also going to succeed and enjoy the lives that we live. And so winning them to that conviction has been our whole victory. Because now what happens is that when something happens in the home, it's not me yelling at the kids or telling them what they should do, it's me appealing to the word of God for their sake and then allowing the Spirit of God to work that conviction into them. Let me give you an example. Rocky or one of the kids maybe has a, a poor attitude towards uh, their schoolwork. And that happens. They all go through those waves. You know, where it's like, I don't want to do this. I'd rather die. Kill me. You know, you know that feeling, you know. And the attitude is just hideous. They don't want to do it. It's like pulling teeth. There's tears. There's frustration. There's sweat. It's really not that complicated, but they don't want to do it, you know. So I have two choices there. I could either say, you're going to do the schoolwork or you're going to eat the paper if I have to make you eat it. You know? and, and I could go that route and I could you know, thunder the fist and get the hammer and make them do it and lock them in their room. And I could do that because I'm stronger than they are. You know? <laughs> you know? 
But here's what I do. And, and this is wisdom from God, not from my thought. As I'll sit down with them one-on-one, take them in a room, and I'll say, listen, and I'll open up the word of God with them. And I'll take them to the Proverbs, and I'll take them to Solomon, and I'll say, here's a man that had, a, had a, a privilege and a priority in the economy and kingdoms of God and men that was higher than anyone else ever had. He was given riches and wisdom and blessing beyond anything that you and I will ever even comprehend. And here's what he says. He says, be diligent. Listen to the words of your mother and the instruction that she gives you. And I'm taking him to the scripture and saying that the hand of the diligent will wax fat, but the slothful will be begging for bread. And I take him to the word of God. And I say, do you understand, first of all, that this parenting thing is really hard and we really don't know what we're doing, number one. But number two is that God wants to do great things for you. And he's imploring with you and saying, this is the time of life that God has set aside for you right now to invest in education and to do these things with all your heart, and you're going to reap the rewards of that later on. Now, I've taken him to the scripture, which God says he will honor above his name. And Rocky, or Jose, I keep using his name. He's really not that bad. He's actually the most diligent of all my kids. He's just, my, his face is there for some reason right now, you know. But, but whoever it is, all of a sudden, they have already been persuaded themselves that the word of God is reliable. And so now they're hearing it not from a frustrated father who's trying to get them to comply, but they're hearing the heart of a loving God who wants them to do well in the world. And, and it's a whole different dynamic. And they say, oh, wow, there's something to that. And their attitude changes, maybe not right on the spot. But the Spirit of God works in them, and the conviction doesn't come from my authority, but it comes from the work of God's Spirit within them, nudging them and saying, hey, I've got good things I want to do in your life. We could be watching something on on TV, and it happens sometimes. Usually uh, uh, something, a movie that we're watching, um, we read the reviews and everything, and we make a decision, we say, yeah, this looks good enough, and and we'll put it on. But five, ten minutes into the movie, uh, kids are mouthing off at their parents, they're treating each other a way. We just don't want to sow that into their lives, and we'll push the pause button, and we'll say, hey, kids, there's death in the pot. And they know what that means. It's a scriptural reference. It's from Kings. We'll get to it eventually. They threw. They were trying to make a stew. They threw a whole bunch of stuff into the stew. Someone accidentally clipped some poisonous leaves and put them in, and people started getting sick. And I'll say to the kids, there's death in the pot. It's, it's, the, the movie's not horrible, but there's some things in here that if we sow these things into our lives, it's going to affect our attitude in, in, in future days. We probably should find something else to watch. And it's at a point where they say, okay. You know, maybe there's a little letdown, but it's not me saying, I say we're not doing. It's, listen, this is God's word. And, and God's word is true. It's going to come to pass. The conviction becomes theirs. We are so out of time. I, I, I so despise this, you know. Give me three minutes. We'll fly over the rest, okay. Just because there's one message here, I want to get it across to you. But I can, uh, I, I, I can change gears. Compound low, we'll go into high. He was also socially adjusted. You can read the chapter. He then goes on and he gives him instructions concerning Joab. Joab was a man who was not submissive to authority. He was loyal to David when it was convenient for Joab. But when it wasn't, he would fly in the face of it, even to the point of murdering three men. He first killed uh, um, the brother of Joab, you know, uh, or no, he killed him. I forgot his name right now. I should stop, huh? The spirit of God has departed, you know. He killed three men that David says they were more righteous than himself. Abner, thank you. Abner, and then, uh, and then he killed um, Absalom against the direct desire of David, and then he killed Amasa, and David charges him with uh, death in, in, in peacetime, that he should not uh, have done that. You know what, let's stop. I- I'm beating a dead horse at this point. Let's sum up what we've got thus far. How not to raise your kids, okay? Adonijah, he was a man who was undisciplined, uncorrected, and ultimately he was unsuccessful, and he will, as we'll see as we pick up next time, uh, die an untimely death. Solomon, way to go. Read ahead, read the rest of chapter 2, on into chapter 3, and we'll see the keys. What is it? How can we uh, faithfully equip Uh, the next generation uh, for the things that are to come. The worship team can come and we'll close in prayer. Father, we thank you for your testimony and your truth.
thank you that your word is the same yesterday, today, and forever. That it stays the same, that it will never die. It's never obsolete or old. We thank you, Lord, that it's a foundation that we can build our lives upon. And that in it, Lord, not only do we find success for ourselves, but we prosper in a relationship with you. And so we ask you, Father, that you would, as our Heavenly Father, raise us up to be successful sons and daughters, pleasing to you. Lord, that you would help us to walk in your ways, to prosper in your works. And Lord, as parents, as those that look at a generation that's coming up that needs us, Lord, that you would help us shine as lights in this dark world. So be with us, Lord, we would ask. Equip us this week. I pray that these things would be in the forefront of our minds. As we prepare our hearts to hear more of what you did and how you raised up Solomon, I pray this week, Lord, you would give us time, that you would assess us, Lord, the way that we look at our children, the way we deal with them, the way we discipline them. Father, that you would challenge us, that we'd be prepared, and that you would help us, Lord, to do your will in this time. So bless us, Lord, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's all stand together.